Ladies and gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of the largest and oldest wrestling family on the planet. Listen to what I'm saying. That's right. Bring that camera in here a little bit closer. Through 93 years and four generations. The stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name, you will remember it. And now, the stud is here. All right, here we go, Studcast fans. It's David Summers, and it's another Studcast with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. It's the story of wrestling in America as told by the stud, whose family started the profession 100 years ago. Now we step back into the ring, back into time, into the Great Smoky Mountains. There ain't no hoss like the Tennessee stud. Ron Fuller. There he is right there. What's going on, Ron? Hey, I'm doing great, Dave. How about you, man? Oh, doing good. It's hot. We're under a heat wave in this area. We've we've even got a heat advisory in effect for the next couple of days in the daytime hours. It's going to be so hot. So they're warning folks that are staying outdoors and working outdoors because it really could be dangerous. So, and oh, it's, yeah, man. It's, uh, yeah. We're getting it, too. Yeah. You no, know, we don't normally get it, uh, but... I think we got 94 here today. <laughs> so 96 tomorrow, they say. Yeah. So yeah, it's just walking up the scale, man, in the wrong direction. Yeah. If I'm outside, I'm looking for one thing. That would be shade, basically. <laughs> All right. So yeah. listen, I got a photo yesterday. I got a text, and it looks like you guys continue to have a nuisance problem there at the Hacienda in the Great Smoky Mountains. Yeah, man, it's pretty cool, I guess, though, in a way. I mean, uh, we have a creature that's very rare, and uh, I guess he's not taking a liking to us. I guess we're not feeding him properly. Bigfoot? Whatever, you know, and uh, so, yeah, and then Bigfoot, yeah. I mean, uh, he likes to tromp on the, the automobiles, man. Oh, so that last you had- time, Last time he started to back and walked all the way over the top and off the hood. Okay. Oh. All right, so did you name the bear Bigfoot? <laughs> uh, no, I haven't named him yet. Man. Uh, uh, I'd like to kick him in the rear end, man. If how he, heavy? Any if idea? I say, is he crush one of my crush the roof or something, man? I, yeah, is he heavy enough to? Happy with that? Is he heavy enough to dent the roof or the dent the hood on the car? I haven't actually seen him, man. So I don't oh. know exactly what size he is, but he's obviously a bear <laughs> because of the footprints, the size of the prints. And, yeah. And, um, so, and there's a bunch of them around here, man. I was going to say. Year, man, they might have a good winter out there because uh, yeah. there seems to be more bears than ever up here, they say, in this part of the country. Do you see them almost daily? Uh, I see them probably once a week. Wow. Bear. Wow. So, you know, it's, uh, there got to be a lot of them uh, for as much country as there is out here if you see that many. Of course, you make me think back to your grandfather. How big, ultimately, was Ginger? Ginger was a black bear, and that's what you're seeing every day. 
Yeah, Ginger was a big one, man. She was up there around 600 pounds. Holy cow. Wow. Yeah, she, she was a bad girl, man. Yeah. Wow. wow. I guess he fed her pretty good. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. Yeah. All right. Uh, she almost ate my dad's. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you got to be. She didn't get that old man. Yeah. Well, Ron, I'm going to ask you uh, if you're, are you playing with the bear's babies or anything? You're not touching the bear's babies, are you? Oh, no, no. Okay. <laughs> you know, uh, I'm, I'm a little brighter than that. Man. Yeah, okay. Yeah. You know, uh, yeah. Very, they get a little angry about that. They're yeah. very personal about them babies. Yeah, yeah, it seems to be. All right. I tell you what, Stud, it's, it's interesting day to day, week to week, to see what's happening around your home there in the Great Smoky Mountains. And listen, another great Studcast last week. I got to tell you, judging from the title for this one, you, you have me wondering again. What is coming this week? You call this one Tennessee Fantastic Angle, Alabama Wrestle War. So when the when you name the southeastern Knoxville part of the studcast something to do with the fat, Fantastic Angle, that kind of gets my attention right away. It's probably going to be mind-blowing, in my opinion. Then you follow that with Wrestle War in southeastern Gulf Coast, I really have no idea what to expect today. This could be a wild one again. Well, I can give you a little hint, man, about the fantastic angle in Knoxville. Uh, remember, the southeastern belt was held up again last week, uh, you know, in the last cast when the bell, belt fell off the top of the 25-foot pole to the Coliseum floor in Knoxville. And uh, this time, the result of that match is, is going to freak fans out. <laughs> last time, it kind of freaked them out when the belt fell. But, wow, this one is going to really top it. You know, uh, and uh, it's going to be something that no one would have ever predicted. And uh, and uh, that's why I call it, uh, It's it, to my, in my opinion, it's a fantastic angle. And, <laughs> but that Knoxville car was uh, far more than just a pole match. It had three main events in it. And then the uh, southeastern Gulf Coast, the same night as the Knoxville cart in the north, uh, we were going to celebrate Dothan, Alabama, becoming the first city in the new territory down there. Uh, in Gulf Coast to break 3,000 fans. And uh, so uh, me and Bob talked about it, and we created a name to describe the next event there. <laughs> we decided to call it the Dothan Wrestle War. And for the first time ever, they were going to get six matches uh, in this Wrestle War, including one of them, a 12-man elimination match in the main event. The winner is going to get 10 grand. Wow. Right, so really, so you and your brother as bookers we're taking things up another notch. It looks like things were beginning to get really hot as the summer of 1978 arrived. And I also recall last studcast, you broke the all-time Southeastern attendance record for a single night, as I recall, when you hit almost 9,000 fans on June 2nd, 1978. 5,600 in Knoxville, Tennessee, and just over 3,000 in Dothan, Alabama. You also set a new record for attendance in both territories combined on the last studcast. So I guess, I guess you were beginning to feel a little bit more confident about your purchase of Gulf Coast wrestling and this big move to the South. Well, you're, you're right about that, Dave. I mean, speaking of Gulf Coast and, uh, and we kind of turned the corner there, man, in just the first three months of operation in 1978, I was listening the other day to the entire Stars of the Sport two-hour interview on a streaming channel with Bob Armstrong again. And I hadn't heard it in four years. 
And uh, and with what has been added to it, with all these new photos, it really blew me away. And, uh, and the reason I bring it up is in one part, Bob talked about being in the Georgia Territory right before leaving to go to the Gulf Coast Territory to open it up with me. So uh, he spoke about how everybody from the owner, Jim Barnett, to all the wrestlers in the Georgia Territory, after they came and, and uh, purchased the territory first mm -hmm. and uh, didn't have any success there, they all, though, he said, really drove him nuts to telling him what a mistake he'd made by <laughs> buying into dead territory. <laughs> like the Gulf Coast Territory was at that point. Mm, wow. All right, you're, you're talking about the streaming channel, ClassicContinentalWrestling.com, where that great Bob Armstrong, Stars of the Sport interview, is now on. It is there right now. I listened to that one the other night, and it, it, to me, it was a great tribute to a man's man, no doubt. A tremendous two hours of wrestling history. It revealed almost everything that you could have ever wanted to know about Bob Armstrong and his life. Plus, it had at least 50 really cool photos in it that made it even more special. I can't believe all the things that are already there at ClassicContinentalWrestling.com. Plus, oh, this is cool, too. I'm really enjoying Brutus, your lion story, like a lot of people. I don't have a lot of time for reading, but audiobooks are perfect for me, especially if you've got time out on the road and you're driving around. This is a fun thing to do. Your first three episodes are on there. They've been fascinating. I really love the fact that you're doing some of the voices yourself. You have already introduced, I love this, a Ron Wright type character, as well as an Australian policeman, and you're just getting started. So what else is new and what else is coming to the classic continental wrestling.com streaming channel well uh, since you talked about brutus there uh, the fourth episode is going to be coming later in the week uh, plus the third superstars of the past episode uh, and it's about uh, the great uh, maybe the greatest american professional wrestler of all time frank gotch he's the subject matter for this one it's now on the channel uh, we got uh, two more new stud stories going up there this week and uh one of them's about 1973, kind of the year I became a star in Australia, Florida, and St. Louis, the home of Sam Mutsnick, the president of the NWA. Mm -hmm. And the other story is about the fantastic angle that we're going to be talking about in this stud cast. Hmm. All right. So I, I'm kind of anxious to hear about that angle uh, that even you say was fantastic. So where do we ride first, stud? We're going to start in the southeastern Knoxville Territory, man, up there in the north uh, with a tremendous card in the Coliseum. This time it's uh, one week later than last week. It's on June 9th, 1978. Uh, it's the second pole match for the southeastern belt. It ends with a unique angle that left everyone's jaw hanging open, man. I can guarantee you that. A six-man tag with Texas Deathmatch rules. The first great Malenko-Russian chain match and the introduction of the United States karate champion, Ron Slinker. Uh, we're also going to talk about the TV show that promotes this card, the big one here we just talked about. We'll talk about the results of that card, and then we'll talk about the attendance of the same card in Knoxville. And uh, second half, uh, we'll ride south in the southeastern Gulf Coast to the biggest card so far in that territory, the first Russell War, and it took place uh, on the same Friday night in Dothan, Alabama, as the Knoxville fans were packing the Coliseum to see their card. And we're going to talk about the Dothan card, the TV promoted it, the results of the card, and the attendance there. 
We're going to touch, uh, if got the time, on two cities in particular, Mobile, Alabama and Pensacola, Florida. They were both going to have matches without a TV to promote them for the next two weeks. We'll find out what kind of wrestling fans live there in those two cities. And we'll also discuss the beginning of the huge billboard buy made six weeks earlier. It began on June 1st, 1978, nine days before mm-hmm. this match we're going to be talking about. And it took place across the entire territory, except for Mobile and Pensacola, which we're going to come in about three weeks later. Mm. Then to get the time permitting, man, we're going to answer another learning tree question. <laughs> All right, it sounds like definitely sounds like another loaded stud cast again. That's all I can say, stud. I don't know how you do it, but we're getting more into each episode now than we ever have. So give us the card. Let's start with Knoxville, Tennessee, in the Coliseum, June 9th, 1978. Okay, so we're going back 44 years, man, uh, and it's a triple main event card. Uh, the opening match featured the return of a, a great worker, man, Don Fargo. Uh, and he was wrestling against the son of another great old-timer, Lynn Rossi, one of the best wrestlers in the history of that part of the country. Rossi was Nashville, man, lived there for many, many years. Uh, so uh, his son, Joey Rossi, was going to make his first appearance ever in Southeastern on that card. Tony Charles was taking on Steve Brody. The United States karate champion, Ron Slinker, was making his Southeastern debut against Don Carson. The first of three main events was next. The great Malenko was finally getting his type of match that he'd been screaming for uh, since he got there. The first ever in Southeastern wrestling Russian chain match was going to be against Ricky Gibson. The next main event was a six-man tag, Texas Death Rules match, Robert Fuller, Jimmy Golden, Bob Root, based off against Dennis Condry, Phil Hickerson, and Olan Wright. And the last match of the night was another pole match for the Southeastern belt that was now being held up very high in the air, as a matter of fact, <laughs> for the second week in a row, placed on the top of a 25-foot pole. So uh, this time it would be much better connected to the top of the pole than it had been the week before. I can guarantee you that. And the man who retrieved the belt, and this one, it stood in the middle of the ring with it, uh, would be the next Southeastern champion. And this match had Ronnie Garvin against the great uh, Mongolian stomper managed by Don Carson. Wow. That, I mean, that's another fantastic card, Ron. So what happened on TV six days earlier, June 3rd of 78, to set this whole thing up to promote the card? Well, the TV opened with Garvin and Les at the set. Behind them on the huge set was the big still shot there of the belt, uh, up on top of the pole. This was from the pole match and with the belt had fallen off. But the still shot was before the belt fell off, obviously. And it had Ronnie Garvin and the Mongolian Stomper. They were both about halfway up the pole, fighting each other, hanging on the pole. And uh, and about, uh, you know, the belt was just uh, just not too far above them. But uh, the, it, was a, it was a really freaky match. Uh, those pole matches were really, really phenomenal because fans so got so much into them. So uh, Les got right in, man, to what was, was about to happen and called for the TV director to roll the video. And the first thing my brother told me later, and you know, I wasn't there, didn't see this TV, but um, I talked to Rob about this one extensively, is, is that captured... The first thing that caught everybody's attention, he said, when they ran the video was the sound of an almost sold out Coliseum gasping when the pole 
uh, was obviously started to wobble in a giant circle with the weight of those two big, huge wrestlers on it. And uh, even the studio let out a gas, Rob said, even though almost all of them probably been there the night before. But uh, even watching it back was pretty scary. <laughs> So, wow. so Les told me later it was that he, he said it, it was a shocking scene. Right? <laughs> he said it, it, he said it looked like to me the pole was about to break in half and send both those guys crashing to the concrete floor, and they were at least fifteen, maybe close to twenty feet up and up off the concrete, man. So, uh, so then uh, during all this, man, the bell fell, bell fell from the top of the pole seconds later. And both men climbed down. The video showed all this. Continued to fight on the floor of the Coliseum over the belt that was laying there. And they were already bleeding when they were up on the pole. So uh, it became even bloodier as they fought around the building. They didn't stop where the belt was. They left the belt and just continued to fight. Went toward the back of the building. Worked their way to the front of the building. Police surrounded them. And all of that was over that strap of leather. Covered in metal plates, it was the Southeastern Heavyweight Championship belt. So uh, less and uh, less and heavily, uh, heavy and a heavily bandaged Garvin, because this had just happened. This this match had just happened the night before, and they'd been bleeding pretty bad. Uh, they talked about the upcoming second pole match the following Friday, and then a bandaged Mongolian Stomper. He he was all busted up too. Managed by Carson, went to the ring for the first TV match. Don Carson, he, you know, he always got the Mongol cranked up, man, and he had him destroy some young kid that ended up also bleeding, uh, which wasn't unusual for a Stomper opponent on TV. Stomper liked to, liked to get that blood when he could. And uh, Garvin still sitting with Les, and Don Carson with the Stomper in Studio B set the stage, man, for another 25-foot climb to the Southeastern Championship six nights later. Second segment of the TV show was another bandaged wrestler, Ricky Gibson, showing a video from the night before, just like uh, the one that they had watched with Garvin. And then this one, Boris Malenko had him almost beat before he left him and got out of the ring, went underneath the ring where he had thrown his chain when they wouldn't allow him to take it into the ring and brought it into the ring. And, uh, and he used it, man. <laughs> yeah, he, he, he let people get an idea of what that was all about. So, uh, you know, Ricky's describing what fans were seeing on the screen and, uh, how Malenko used his chain uh, and he busted his right eye open and, uh, even though it was never supposed to be a Russian chain match, the kind of match that you know, Malenko had been demanding for months, Ricky explained that uh, he knew how much Southeastern Commissioner Don Curtis despised the Russian chain match. But uh, he said, you know, now, you know, after this happened to me, this was not a chain match, and he got the chain and used it on me. He says, uh, why don't we just have one? You know, so basically he's not backing away, man. And Ricky Gibson was a tough son of a gun, you know. So, so, uh, and then he's told us, he said, I've spoken to Don Carson. Don Carson, I'm sorry, Don Curtis. Big difference between Carson yeah. and Curtis. Okay. <laughs> I tell you that, you know. But uh, Ricky said, you know, he talked to Don Curtis himself about earlier in the week, and, uh, and he told him, I want it. I want that match. Uh, book it. So, so the great Malenko was in the next TV match. He brought out, he's brought his chain to the ring, but 
He happened to be uh, required. He happened to have the same referee that had handled his match the night before. And that referee said, you take the chain back to the dressing room before we even start this match. So Malenko walked his chain back, disappeared back in, out of the studio, uh, and he came back without his chain. Uh, so then, uh, you know, Malenko made his mark anyway. It didn't make any difference. He didn't need the chain to make his to make his statement. And he ended the match he was in by stomping his opponent unmercifully. He did that old deal that he had done many, many times since he'd been there. He stomped that guy from head to toe, all the way around his entire body, <laughs> every inch of his body, it seemed like, wow. before he finally covered him. <laughs> That's terrible, terrible way to, <laughs> to lose and a terrible way to, uh, to have your body just tromped. <laughs> just <was> like, hmm. <laughs> so then uh, Malenko joined Les at the set. And uh, Ricky Gibson interviewed from Studio B, and they talked about this historical first-ever Russian chain match in the Coliseum six nights later. Uh, Southeastern Commissioner Don Curtis had sent a video for this show. Uh, he had gone over to Tampa. He lives in Jacksonville, and he had ridden over to Tampa, and he recorded this video five days earlier than, than the TV show at the Tampa Sportatorium. Where the ter Florida Territory Office was located, and where they made their weekly TV shows, Gordon Soley's home, and he asked it to be played on the personality profile by Les that day. And in the video, Curtis explained again his disdain for the great Malenko's Russian chain match. He explained that Malenko had badly injured so many opponents in his home state of Florida that Curtis had done everything possible to bar it from southeastern wrestling, and. Uh, being down there from 70 to 74 myself, can't tell you how many of those Russian chain matches I saw. Hmm. Uh, I never was in one with Malenko, mm -hmm. but boy, I saw him hurt guys really bad in those things. Wow. So um, he said, you know, that if Ricky Gibson hadn't asked him for that type of match himself, that he would have never okayed it to ever happen in the Southeast. And uh, that he had told Ricky that uh, he, North Southeastern Wrestling, we're going to be responsible in any way for any injuries Ricky got had received, uh, you know, in the upcoming chain match, uh, which was the following Friday. And, you know, by this point, the door had been finally opened in Southeastern for one of the most dangerous matches in wrestling. Okay, so the great Malenko had been in Southeastern for more than two months, and it seems like every time he was on TV, which was about every week, of course, Malenko had brought up his Russian chain match. I don't remember ever seeing any wrestler do that anywhere. You had already made this type of match controversial, to say the least, before it had even even happened, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, my brother and I had, had given that match special impact by mm -hmm. just uh, having uh, Curtis, you know, be so against it. <laughs> and, and that special impact meant that every time there was going to be one, it's going to be something special. It was yeah. going to be uh, fans were going to watch it with a different perspective than a normal match. Yeah, I mean, making a big deal out of it, and, and it had never been done or never been seen. That's pretty cool. All right, so who was in the third TV match that day? Well, it was a new star that had a lot of credibility when he got to Southeastern. He had just won the United States Karate Championship the 
before he wrestled in Southeastern. Uh, he'd been waiting a while to get into Southeastern, and he had been working on karate, and he was a pretty decent wrestler, too. Uh, but uh, he had just got to, he had just got to the okay to come to Southeastern. And according to Rob, uh, he said he could also do some pretty good wrestling moves as well. So uh, this guy's name was Ron Slinker, and uh, he wrestled against Tony Peters. And uh, Tony Peters was a huge guy, man, uh, that outweighed him by at least 50, 75 pounds. So Peters was a big man, man, and he was a, he was a pretty nasty heel. He tried to bully his opponent, especially if he had if he was much heavier than his opponent was. So uh, Ron Slinker wasn't the type of guy that was going to take a lot of that. And Slinker was in great shape. And Peters, at over 300 pounds, was no match for Slinker's speed and agility. Slinker was really fast, tremendous with his hands. And uh, Robert said he was very impressed by Slinker. I hadn't seen Slinker wrestle at this point. And uh, he said so was the studio crowd with the way that the karate expert and finished off Tony Peters. He said he ended the match with a really nasty-looking karate chop that, that left the big 300-pound uh, Peters laying. They, they had to carry him out of the ring. I took it. See, Rob said it took four guys to get him to get him out of the ring when it was <laughs> over. So, so Slinger made a pretty good impression, and uh, he joined less at the set with Don Carson, who was his opponent, for the, ne for the next Friday night in Studio B. And obviously, Carson, you know, he had to brag about how he was going to make Ron Slinker's debut in Southeastern, the shortest run in Southeastern history, that karate guys could not survive against great wrestlers. And he's going to prove it next Friday night. Sounds like Carson. <laughs> so then the last TV match uh, was the six-man tag. It was Robert Fuller, Jimmy Golden, and Bob Root. And, uh, they took care of three masked men who were brought to the ring by Ron Wright. And he called them. He made his point stop when he came out of the dressing room with them, three masked guys. He uh, leaned over to Les and he says, these are my boys, the, the Havoc Incorporated. <laughs> you know, and uh, so, so Ross said, they were a pretty good team. He said, once they got in the ring, they were pretty good. He said, until, you know, until right at the end and when they all six got in the ring at the end of the match, he said to me and Jimmy and, and Bob Root finished him off. And he said, I I, I end up the fuller leg lock. He said, Jimmy drop kicked one of them <laughs> through the ropes and out into the floor. <laughs> and uh, Root, he said, gave the, gave the other one that, and that very impressive shoulder breaker, wow. which was a very, wow, wicked submission move. And uh, it just left guys, it, it broke a lot of shoulders. So Rob said the studio crowd went nuts as they won, and uh, they got out of the ring. And he said, but then he said, so did Ron Wright go nuts. He said he'd been at ringside the entire match and, uh, you know, cheering his team on. And then he said he motioned for his real team, Condry and Hickerson, who was standing in the back, to come join him in the ring. And uh, so him and, uh, and Condry and Hickerson got in the ring, and they began to pulverize the <laughs> The Havoc Incorporated team again, man. He said they put the boots to him and pulled their mask off of him. And uh, he said the crowd loved that almost as much as the match. <laughs> so the show ended with Rob, Jimmy, and Bob Root telling Condry Hickerson and Ron Wright how much pain they were going to endure in the Texas Death Tag Match that was coming up six nights later. 
So it sounds like Rob was really doing a good job putting together the whole TV show. I mean, the whole thing with another great TV in southeastern Knoxville. So what happened? Okay, six nights later in the Knoxville Coliseum. Well, the first thing that happened was Don Curtis was there. And he kind of surprised everybody. And uh, he opened up the event by going to the ring and getting the microphone. And uh, he welcomed everybody. And he made some great comments to the crowd. He had a tremendous personality and a, and a, and a real flair for, for being able to make these nice little uh, uh, statements. And, uh, you know, so uh, he got it off to a great start, the show. And uh, then the returning Don Fargo got a win over young Joey Rossi, which was to be expected. Joey was young, and uh, Fargo was a veteran. If you, there's no doubt that you can't call him anything else. Tony Charles beat Steve Brody. Uh, Ron Slinker started off his southeastern run with a win over Don Carson, and uh, I think he took it to heart what Carson had said about the karate skills. <laughs> And he got to show a whole lot of them on Don Carson before he left him laying. <laughs> so uh, then the first ever Southeastern Russian chain match was everything Don Curtis had not wanted. I mean, Ricky Gibson was hurt so badly in this, they had to carry him to the dressing room on a stretcher. And uh, Boris was just beginning to get his heat. And he, he's really just getting rocking in Southeastern Knoxville. Uh, Robert Fuller, Jimmy Golden, Bob Root won the six-man tag. Texas death match against Dennis Condry, Phil Hickerson, and Ron Wright. But uh, neither team was satisfied. Uh, they're going to be coming back the next week against each other again. This time they're going to be in a Texas tornado match, which is going to have all six of them in the ring at the same time. Wow. All right. There, there was only one match left, so I guess this has to be the match that was going to leave all of us spellbound. Right, Ron? Well, all I can do, Dave, is tell the story, my man. You know, okay. Uh, we, we're going to see how many people get blown away by the finish of it. So uh, so uh, Rob said the building, man, when this match started, uh, when the guys went to the ring, he said the building was just electric, man. And he said uh, you know, you know, this was the second pole match. The belt was already on top of the pole. It had been there all night. Uh, it had been strapped down securely this time. And it wasn't going anywhere. It wasn't going to fall off the pole, that's for sure. And he says, you know, the fans were even more on edge this time. Uh, and he said, maybe it's because, you know, the belt had fallen off the last time and, and they weren't sure it wasn't going to fall off again, right? So I guess when they started up the pole and it swung around or, you know, the fans were just, they were just truly into it. He said the match was even better than the week before, that the two wrestlers, Garvin and, and Stomper, uh, were a little more prepared because they'd never been on a pole match in a pole match before. And uh, because they had already experienced dealing with the height and the climbing of the pole, he said, this match was just, wow, it was off the charts. And he said uh, they went up the pole at least twice as many times as they did in the first match. And every time he said they went up, the gas from the crowd was just amazing. So toward the end of the match, the Stomper and Garvin were fighting in the corner where the pole was connected to the ring. And the referee was trying to separate them. And they had been going at it. They were already bleeding. And uh, Stomper nailed the referee first. And he and Garvin continued to fight. And then the ref finally got back to his feet and he came back again to try to get control of what was happening in the ring. 
And this time, Ronnie Garvin, he didn't hit him. He just grabbed him by the back of the neck and the seat of his pants, and he threw him over the top rope and out on the concrete. So uh, obviously, those two wanted to do it themselves. So Rob said both men instantly then fought their way up the pole together, fighting as they went, man. And he said they got to the highest point yet in the match. And not far, he said, maybe five feet from the actual belt itself. He said the entire building was on its feet. And he said, then they suddenly both fell and landing on their backs in the ring. He said, wow, it was an unreal bump. He said, you know, they fought and they lost their, lost their, uh, their grasp of the pole and their legs. Uh, and he said they fell from almost to the top of the pole on their backs in the ring. And uh, he said, uh, mm. but the belt was still up there on the pole. Wow. And the referee was still out on the concrete. He, he wasn't even, he, he hadn't even started to get back in the ring. Oh. So Don Carson's standing there, right? Now he sees this, and this is his move. He ain't got no referee. He's got both of them down there on their back. And he shot up in the ring, and he started to climb the pole, man. He wanted to get to the belt. And then all of a sudden, somebody else crawled into the ring from nowhere. Someone who hadn't been seen for more than two months. And uh, he ran to the pole, and he started climbing up to Carson, who was nearing the belt at that point. And Rob said the crowd went silent when this guy entered the ring. And the higher he climbed, he said, the louder the crowd got. And uh, he said he grabbed Carson by one foot, and he drug him down to the level he was at. And then he just sent him flying off the pole out of the ring. Wow. And then Rob said the crowd exploded when he did that, man. And and then he finished the climb. He got the belt, and he returned to the ring. But then he got, instead of staying there and uh, celebrating or whatever he's going to do, he got out of the ring, and he disappeared with the belt, took the belt with him out into the crowd in the opposite <laughs> direction of the dressing room. <laughs> okay. All right, so who the heck was this guy, Ron? I mean, did anybody in the building know him? Well, they certainly did, man. It was old Joe LaDuke. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> so All some right. people cheered, yeah, and some people booed him because Joe had left there as a heel uh-huh. uh, against Ronnie Garvin <laughs> in the loser lead town match. So Rob said, uh, and and he said many of the people had no reaction at all, other than they they, they just stare at each other. Wow, like uh, you know what 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 what, what what's going to happen now? I mean, what is this all about, right? <laughs> That's cool. I mean, when the when the fans are just staring at each other, you've got them you got them stunned somewhat. So I mean, that's that's awesome. So why was Joe LaDuke there? Who won the match, and who was declared the winner? Who got the belt? What in the heck happened in this situation? Whoa! So whoa, Dave. <laughs> you know, I'm going to try and answer your questions because because I'm sure the listeners out there asking themselves the same thing, right? You know, and, and I think your unanswered question started off with something like, why was Joel Duke there? Well, uh, you know, and, and who won the match and who was declared all the, who got the belt? Uh, I'll answer all of them, but one at a time. So let's start with the first one you asked. Why was Joel Duke even there? So uh, Joel Duke had contacted me and Rob weeks earlier before this match and said he was back home working in Montreal, Canada, and that he'd been there for almost two months since he left. He went back home and he said, I'm homesick for Tennessee. <laughs> and Joe LaDuke loved it in Tennessee, man. And so he said, uh, I went and asked the Montreal owners if I could have three weeks off to go on a little vacation. He said, since I hadn't had one in 10 years. 
He said, uh, they felt sorry for me, and they told me it was okay. So he asked us, he said, uh, guys, I, I'd love to come back for just three weeks, for just those weeks, and uh, if, if you could use me, if, you, if, you, if you'd do that for me. So how do you tell a guy like Joe LaDuke, man, uh, that you don't want to book him, man? I mean, he almost broke his neck for us mm-hmm. in the crazy blockbusting yeah. angle the year yeah. before. Yeah. And, uh, and he was one of literally the greatest people and wrestlers in the world. So uh, that kind of explains why he was there. You know, we, we, we wanted to have him back. So, uh, and I think your next question was, who won the match and, and was declared the winner? Well, neither Ronnie Garvin, the stomper, or the referee ever saw Joe LaDuke in the end of this match. Garvin and the stomper had fallen from almost the top of the pole, and, uh, and the referee was outside on the floor. So they're all three down, and uh, when uh, LaDuke arrived at the ring, uh, he went straight up the pole, got the belt straight down the pole and left the ring. Carson was the only one that knew what had happened. So uh, after both Garvin and the Stomper fell off the pole and finally regained their feet, they started to fight again. They didn't realize what, that somebody had been there. In the bed. So the referee returned to the ring about the same time. And then Carson reached in and grabbed Stomper by the leg and drug him out on the floor, and he pointed up to the top of the pole where the belt wasn't there no more, right? It's like, whoa, you know? It's like, so, so the referee, he had the same same reaction. He, he looked up there, and he went to the timekeeper, and like, what happened? Where, where's the belt? And then uh, Garvin stood in the middle of the ring. He just stood there dumbfounded, looking up at the empty pole. Uh, the crowd was still going crazy, man, about what they'd just seen, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. They were like, wow, what is happening here? This is unreal. And uh, everybody was still standing, Rob said, in the building. So Garvin left the ring. He went to the dressing room, and so did Carson and the Stomper. I mean, what's the point of fighting any further? <clears throat> You've got no belts, right? Uh-huh. So Don Curtis came to the ring, and for the second time that night, he came to start the show, and he comes on the end, and he took the microphone. He, he didn't apologize. He, he, didn't have no, he didn't have any reason to apologize. I mean, fans had just seen one of the hardest fought matches in history. And they and that had an absolutely shocking ending to it. So he told fans that the match was going to be declared a no contest. And there was no winner. And the Southeastern Heavyweight Championship belt was going to be held up again. Wow. And, you know, and then he told everybody he was going to have to figure out what was happening here. What's going on here, you know? And uh, for them to please watch the TV show tomorrow, that he was staying over, he was going to be on the show, and that uh, he would try to give them some answers tomorrow wow. to watch the show. <laughs> and they thanked him for coming, and he left the ring. So I, I bet there were a lot of fans at the match the night before sitting in front of their TV sets the next day when wrestling came on. So how did the fans still there... Uh, how did they take the news? Well, they just, they, you know, I, I guess they, they, they took it well. They, they had just witnessed one of the greatest matches ever that ended in one of the best angles in the history of the sport. So Rob said it, it didn't seem like they wanted to leave. He said they just stayed. He, when, uh, when Curtis left the ring, he said half the crowd was still there. And, uh, and they weren't angry or upset about what happened. They were all talking to each other on the way out of the building like, wow, what in the heck, man? 
you know? <laughs> it kind of got him, man. <laughs> All right, so what about my last question? Who got the belt? Well, obviously, Joe LaDuke got the belt. All right. <laughs> I mean, he, the big question was why and what was he going to do with it? Uh, one, one more question, Ron. What was the attendance for this incredible, crazy night? Well, it was almost a complete sellout, man. I think it was the biggest house in the Coliseum short of being a world championship event. Wow. 5,800. Wow. Wow. All right, you were exactly right when you said this was going to be a jaw-dropping angle. So this has been a positively dynamite first half of this particular stud cast. I can't wait to hear about the Southeastern Gulf Coast Wrestle War. I got a feeling that's coming up. Let's take a break right here. Let's do that now. What a first half. Hey, stay with us, StudCast fans. We'll be back right after this, and this StudCast will continue in a moment. There is so much old-school, tremendous wrestling content on the ClassicContinentalWrestling.com streaming channel right now. Almost everything there is a product of Ron Fuller Welch. From the two-hour stars of the sports shows, to his new Superstars of the Past series, to his stud stories, it's all old school and very cool. You can't find more great old school content anywhere on the planet. His continental TV shows, USA TV shows, Southeastern TV shows, and classic Gulf Coast matches from the 1960s and 70s are all there. Get on board now for only $4.99 monthly or $39.99 annually. And for a limited time only, get the free one-week trial. Saddle up for history with the stud. All right, fans, welcome back in once again. What a stud cast we're in the middle of, Rod. So where do we, how do you go from here? Where do we ride to now? Well, let's get into what's going on down south, man, in the old Gulf Coast territory. They also had a big card on the same night as the Knoxville event we just talked about. And uh, we, as a way to celebrate the first 3,000 fan crowd from the week before, we had the first Gulf Coast Wrestle War in Dothan, Alabama. So uh, in this Wrestle War, first match, Greg Peterson uh, met Eddie Sullivan. Charlie Cook took on Eddie Mansfield. Mike Stallings wrestled David Schultz. Then had a Gulf Coast tag title match with the champions, the Assassins, managed by Billy Spears against Rip Tyler and Robert Gibson. And uh, this match was going to have a little more riding on it than usual. And it will explain that in the upcoming TV. So uh, so I was wrestling against Bob Armstrong, mm-hmm. not in a title match, but in a no-DQ match that had to be won by submission or a sleeper hole. Now, I had the submission part of it covered with the fuller leg lock. Mm-hmm. And uh, obviously, Bob is going to have to beat me with his sleeper. So for the first time ever on this card, uh, Southeastern Gulf Coast had six matches on it. And the last one of those matches was going to be one of the, these great, uh, tremendous elimination matches. This mm-hmm. one was going to be a 12-man elimination match, and the winner was going to get ten grand. Wow. All right, that's really good. That's a great card, as well as Knoxville, as good as Knoxville was. What happened six days earlier on the Southeastern Gulf Coast TV show that leads into this? Well, I opened it up, man, with Charlie Platt, Gordon Soley, and uh, and I watched the video from the night before where Bob Armstrong, uh, you know, had stole the belt from me. <laughs> That's how, you know, because I'm the guy that climbed the top of the pole and brought the belt down. 
Uh, <laughs> so, wait, Ryan, did 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 he not beat you fair and square? Well, uh, well, the video clearly showed me climb the pole, Dave, and then get right. the belt off of it, and then return and stand in there on the top of the pole with the belt in my hand. All right, but then didn't he knock the belt out of your hands, slam you off the top rope, go over and pick the belt up, raise it in the air? and become the man who legally won the belt. You sound like Charlie Platt and Gordon <laughs> Sully, man, in the dying interview. Okay. And, and that person of the video. Yeah, okay. <laughs> wow. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, I think I've heard that same response, man. <laughs> so, uh, so Bob Armstrong was uh, was in the first match, and uh, and I sat at the set, uh, and you know, I'd just been there. So I sat there at the set with Charlie Platt and Gordon Sully, and I made a few nasty remarks about him, maybe, uh, you know, goody two shoes and all the stuff oh, crap that he was. And, uh, <laughs> and, and, and uh, about our upcoming match uh, where he denied me of a title shot after he stole the belt. Now he won't give me a chance to win it back. And uh, and uh, this one was going to be uh, no DQ uh, match. And uh, it had to be one either with a submission or a sleeper hole. Well, I didn't know the sleeper hole, and he didn't know the fuller leg lock either. So, so I also reminded him, though, uh, during this discussion about how good my record was in money events. When there was money at stake, that's when I shined. And I reminded him, ten grand is a lot of money, and I intend to win that elimination match. I don't care what happens between me and Armstrong. So Armstrong won the TV match with a sleeper hole, and then he did the old deal where I'm leaving the set at that point, and he put his big rear end on the second rope, and he pushed the top one up and invited me to come into the ring, right? <laughs> Boy, the fans love that, right? You know? Yeah. So I kind of thumbed my nose at him, and I had a lit cigar, and I flipped it at him in the ring, uh -uh. and I passed him by on the way to the dressing room. And when I flipped that cigar, <laughs> he shot out of the ring, and I had to take a couple of quick steps to beat him into the dressing room <laughs> before he could get his hands on me. Yeah, so, <laughs> so the second match was the Assassins, managed by Billy Spears versus a couple of very much overmatched opponents, uh, Rip Tyler and Robert Gibson. They joined the, the two commentators, uh, Charlie Platt and Gordon Soley at the set. And Tyler, man, he just uh, <laughs> verbally attacked Billy Spears immediately. I mean, he had a tremendous hatred, obviously, for Billy Spears, and uh, and it was it was very noticeable. And he got so angry that Spears kept getting involved in this match, and, and he kept egging Tyler on in the process. You know, come on over here and do you. What are you going to do about it? And uh, so Tyler got got <laughs> he got too involved, and uh, so he asked Gordon and Charlie if there was any chance that they could get another type title match next Friday night between him and Robert Gibson uh, against the assassins. And he said, uh, and if you can, he said, I've been willing to commit to leaving the Gulf coast. If he and if, if me and Robert can't beat him hmm. and if Spears, uh, and if we can beat him, we get the belts and, and I'd like to see Spears leave the Gulf coast. Hmm. So, Robert Gibson got upset with the challenge, you know, and he, he was like, whoa, wait, wait, you know, they do it. he didn't want to lose his partner under any circumstances. Right. So, uh, but Tyler, he, he was dead set on it. He wouldn't retract the challenge. They gave him uh, the commentators a couple of opportunities. Are you sure you want to do this? Yeah. 
yeah, I want to, man. And uh, so uh, he wouldn't attract the, the challenge. And the Assassins uh, uh, kept their winning streak alive with another TV win. And uh, Charlie and Gordon uh, said they would pass along the challenge and see what happened. So Bob Armstrong joined Charlie Platt and Gordon Soley for the personality profile. Mm -hmm. about the upcoming $10,000 elimination match. They opened up first, though, by congratulating Bob for regaining the Gulf Coast title belt, which he had with him uh, from the recent pole match the night before. And then they spent the balance of the time explaining how an elimination match worked. And this one's going to have 12 wrestlers and uh, that they would be surrounded, uh, surround the ring, and as a man was defeated, he left the ring, and whoever had beaten him picked his next opponent, and the match went on until there was one man that had remained undefeated. The last guy that didn't get beat got the money. So David Schultz was back on TV again several weeks after the watermelon incident with Charlie Cook, you know, and he was a lot different dude at this point. He'd had, he had been spoken to about it several times. And, uh, and he was very hard on TV job boys, guys that wrestled, that came in uh, and, uh, you know, put people over. Uh, and, uh, boy, <laughs> David Schultz, he made, he made uh, those guys miserable, man. And uh, we're back in the Hills dressing room, man. We had a monitor. And I remember watching this match. And with Eddie Mansfield, Eddie Sullivan was standing there, uh, the assassins uh, uh, were all there watching him. And uh, we're all just cringing, man, with every stomp and every punch. It's like, whoa, God, <laughs> you know. But, wow, Schultz was dedicated, man. He was going to be a star, and he already had great heat. And uh, for a guy who had been in the business less than two years, he was well on his way to stardom. <laughs> so after his win, he and Eddie Mansfield talked about their upcoming single matches against Mike Stallings and Charlie Cook. And then they focused on that $10,000 prize just days away. The last TV match was a tag. Rip Tyler and Robert Gibson against uh, two unknown opponents. Don't remember their names. And uh, Billy Spears came to the set by himself as soon as the match got started. And uh, he was telling uh, uh, Charlie and Gordon that he had heard about the challenge Tyler had made to him earlier in the show. And uh, he let everybody then know how he felt about Rip Tyler. He had a few choice words for Tyler, but he didn't commit to the match Tyler had proposed. They asked him, you know, are, are you willing to do this? And, uh, well, he's under his destiny. You know, he just he kind of avoided it. So, uh, but he was prepared, man, to send his assassin team into the ring at the perfect time. Uh, he went there to the set uh, to take everybody's attention away from him and, uh, and uh, then he was there to cause some damage to Gibson and Tyler's team that day. Uh, and uh, so uh, so in the middle of the sentence there, he was talking to them, and he knew his team was back there and could hear what he said on the monitor. Uh, they had that monitor there in the dressing room that uh, he picked a spot. And he said, go! <laughs> and and uh, I don't think anybody else listening to the TV understood what it was, but all of a sudden, man, uh, well, those two boys in black, man, they they came exploding out of that dressing room door and they charged the ring. They got Tyler and Gibson down. And uh, then Spears left the set to go and join him, man, in the ring. And when he got there, his team had already shot Robert Gibson out on the floor. And uh, both the assassins were holding Tyler so that Spears could do what he wanted to to it. 
So Spears, uh, you know, rather than going ahead and taking the shot when it was really easy, he 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 just uh, he bandied around like oh yeah I'm gonna do he talking and he was, he was mouthing things off and then when he threw the punch Tyler ducked and uh, both the assassins went down and Gibson was turning to returning to the ring about that same time <laughs> so Tyler began to tear that white suit to shreds that Billy Spears' mother had given him. When he became a wrestling manager, oh, one he was so proud of. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and while the studio was going crazy, the Spears, man, uh, you know, at first he tore his suit coat off, then he tore his shirt off, and then, and then Tyler started on his pants, and uh, and and he got his pants off, and he had on long underwear. <laughs> he managed to get his pants off too, and then boy, at that point, his team got a hold of <laughs> Spears. And they drug him out and got him into the dressing room. Well, that was the loudest crowd, uh, you know, the loudest pop I'd ever heard in that studio since we'd arrived there, man, in, in months. I mean, Billy Spears then came back to the set. The show was about to close. The interview was done. And he was wrapped in a big old towel. And he just outright accepted the challenge that Rip Tyrell had made earlier in the show. And uh, so then uh, another title match was added to that card. Tyler versus Skip, Tyler and Gibson against the Assassins. And if they lost, Rip Tyler would have to leave Gulf Coast. And uh, and then if they won the match, <laughs> then the Assassins would lose the belt. Mm-hmm. And Billy Spears was going to have to leave the Gulf Coast. Wow. All right. I got to admit, Stud, I don't know which TV show is better. but So what happened six days later in Dothan, Alabama? Well, Eddie Sullivan beat Greg Peterson, first match. Uh, Charlie Cook won over Eddie Mansfield. Uh, David Schultz uh, beat Mike Stallings. Uh, Rip Tyler and Robert Gibson lost to the Assassins, managed by Billy Spears. Uh, Rip Tyler was leaving Gulf Coast immediately after this show was going to air in the last station that it was being bicycled to. Uh, Rip Tyler was going to be gone from the Gulf Coast. Uh, Bob Armstrong uh, put me to sleep, by golly. And he won the no DQ match between he and I. Uh, there was no doubt about that. Uh, however, though, he wasn't able to do it to me again when we both ended up the last two guys in the elimination match for the 10 grand. So Bob had just beat uh, David Schultz, was the last guy uh, left besides me and him. He was the 10th mm-hmm. loser in the elimination match. Wow. And uh, Schultz was still at ringside. Trying to recover. I think Bob had beat him with the sleeper hole, as a matter of fact. And he was still trying to get his get his head straight. And uh, and once uh, once I saw what was going on and uh, Bob had his back turned, I attacked him. And I had to, what the heck, take advantage of this deal. And, then, and I grabbed him in a headlock like a dummy. And he just uh, shot me right straight into the referee. <laughs> and uh, so the referee went down and I staggered back. And by golly, bam. He put me in a sleeper hole for the second time in the same night. And uh, the crowd, then it was a big crowd. They, they went crazy, man. And and then and it was going crazy. They were loving it until Schultz, standing right there at ringside, got his stuff back together, and he just crawled up into the ring. And the uh, referee was still down, and he nailed Bob Armstrong from behind. And uh, Bob dropped me out of the sleeper. And uh, then Bob went flat on his face. Schultz snatched him up, piledrived him, put me on top of him, and stepped outside the ring. But wow. he couldn't go anywhere because <laughs> the crowd 
that was coming to the ring to get us. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the ref counted Bob out, raised my hand, and, uh, and as I slowly realized, uh, looking around <laughs> all four sides of the ring, the, the fight of the night was still ahead of me in shoots. <laughs> so the announcer handed me the check. Thank goodness it wasn't cash because if I couldn't have kept the cash and fought my way to the dressing room. So, uh, so Schultz and I stood in the middle of the ring. There was no way to get out. They were 10 deep all the way around all four sides of the ring. Mm. Uh, <laughs> knives out, some knives out. Uh, they're ready. You know? God. And uh, so we stood in the middle of the ring, and uh, we're looking back at the back of the building for the cavalry, man. Uh-huh. You know? Uh-huh. Because uh, because just as all of us heels men had been talking, we'd have so many of these riots. We talked about it many times yeah. that the entire heel crew had to wait every night to see if the last match was going to have trouble getting back to the dressing room. Yeah. yeah. So, so it was just like a Western movie, Dave, uh, where the cavalry came to the rescue, man. Wow. Here came all these wrestlers <laughs> in the dressing room and the policemen fighting their way to the ring. It was beautiful. And so Schultz and I stayed there until they got there. And then uh, we got out with them and uh, we fought our way all the way back to the dressing room. Wow. Uh, and uh, none of us got hurt, but there were a lot of bodies laying in the path that we made getting back to the dressing room. I can tell you that. I bet a lot of listeners, I bet a lot of Studcast fans, even wrestling fans, have never seen anything like that, Ron. It's all such a joke today. Fighting the fans for your life is kind of hard to imagine in the sport today. Well, it certainly is. There's no <laughs> doubt about that. Yeah. You know, it wasn't going to be long, though, until we had we were going to have one of these that's much worse than this one. And uh, <laughs> thank the good Lord, uh, it, it's going to be me that gets hurt when this one comes, when the bad one comes. Oh, boy. All right. So how many fans were there that night? 3,300, man. Whoa. We're, we are getting that old farm center, man, uh, uh, beginning to look like it used to look forever after, you know, later on. By the time the summer is going to be over, we're going to be filling her up, man. So so I had never seen a town, Dave, that small, that had fans <laughs> like that. It, it was amazing. It was the 13th straight Dothan event without a drop in attendance. That's a feet in itself right there Hmm. and in fact only one time in the 15 total weeks that we'd been there was there a drop in the crowd at all that's incredible all right so you actually broke nine thousand fans this week on those two friday night events ron this stud cast has been an experience a real experience so i'm sorry but we're not going to be able to get to the mobile tv situation of the news about the billboard buy that's kind of interesting i want to know more about that or the learning tree question is not going to be in today so i don't know how we could get any more into this one stud it's been a real classic so far really good job so far you've come up with some crazy finishes to matches ron but the joe laduke return angle has to be one of the all-time best what you guys were doing with these two relatively small territories was truly record setting with some of the best ideas ever. I can't imagine how big the crowds would be if you had been in some of the major markets in the country, like you could have been if you had taken that national TV opportunity. Do you ever think about that? Do you ever regret that? (laughs) 
Yeah, that's crossed my mind a few times, man. Uh, but I guess, uh, Dave, that's another story for another time. I bet it is. Hey, folks, I tell you what, on Facebook, to become friends with Ron, you can only do it by going to his Ron Fuller, the Tennessee Stud Facebook page, like him and follow him there, and you automatically become friends with a legend. And on Twitter, follow him at Ron Fuller Welch. On the website, visit the stud on his tremendous website, tnstud.com. You'll find great videos, a photo gallery, every studcast ever done, 43 super studcaster there too. Shop the stud store for all kinds of souvenirs, personally autographed photos, the classic Continental Video 5 packs, and his thrilling lion novel called Brutus. Southeastern Rewind on YouTube is still full of great shows and coming soon, a first live YouTube question and answer show with the stud. Also get information there about the streaming channel. Check out ClassicContinentalWrestling.com. Ron's fantastic streaming channel. It's all there and always will be. The third superstars of the past series with Frank Gotch is now there too. With superstars Abraham Lincoln, yeah, the president, and Martin Farmer Burns. April 1986, Continental TV shows are now there too. 23 USA TV shows, two new stud stories, and now four stars of the sport with Andre the Giant, Mankind Mick Foley, legendary Ron Wright, and Bob the Bullet Armstrong with hundreds of new photos added. Three, hey, we're not done. Three documentaries, Wildcat Wendell Cooley, world premiere of Tony Anthony's Dirty White Boy, plus a tremendous two-hour special of Mongolian stomper matches and three Brutus readings with another chapter coming this week by the end of the week. Well over 110 hours of old school wrestling entertainment now, and it's only the beginning. Subscribe now at ClassicContinentalWrestling.com. ClassicContinentalWrestling.com. Only $4.99 per month, $39.99 per year. It is fast becoming the best old school streaming site on the planet. Don't miss this special offer right now for a limited time. Get a free one-week trial on ClassicContinentalWrestling.com. All right, so where are we riding next, Studcast? On the next Studcast, Ryan. Right, well, we're going to dive in back into that crazy Joe Duke return angle. And we're going to find out why and, and what, man, his diabolical plan is for Southeastern. He's basically in control of the belt at this point. And uh, so uh, I think fans are going to find the next one very, very interesting about uh, how this all plays out with Joe Duke. And uh, we're going to get to another great card in Knoxville. We'll discuss the TV, the results of the Knoxville card. We'll talk about the, the attendance again. And uh, then we're going to get a, a Mobile, Alabama card on the next one. And uh, we're going to get uh, take a look at that TV situation, the billboard buy that we couldn't get today. Uh, we couldn't get to it. I'm sorry we couldn't. And I'm also sorry we weren't able to get to the learning to question. Uh, but uh, we'll do our best to get there next week. And, uh, and I want to thank everybody, as always, for listening again. And hope you all enjoyed the Studcast. Hope you come back next week for another one. And please take good care of yourselves and others. May God bless us all. For Ron Fuller in the Great Smoky Mountains, I'm David Summers saying thank you for listening. Find me at davidsummersproductions at gmail.com. 
This Studcast is a David Summers production for Tennessee Stud, LLC. Thanks for joining us today for this historic Studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson your friends and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.